<laughs> we chose them as um, the theme for Lent for us as we head towards Easter peace because we want more of it. At a systems level, the opposite of peace is war. At an individual level, the opposite of peace is anxiety. Now, we get confused sometimes when we try to understand how God intends to bring peace to us through Jesus because we conflate the two. We kind of think of them as the same or we don't understand the difference. But Jesus, pretty clearly, I think, has a complex relationship with he sees them differently. Because while he promises, for example, to his followers, he says to his followers, do not let your hearts be troubled. I am here to bring you peace within yourself. He kind of says the opposite about systems. <laughs> I did not come to bring peace but a sword. Right? So how Jesus interacts with these things is complicated. And they kind of go together. Today we're going to look at a story where because of Jesus bringing peace to a person, the system that that person inhabits experiences a lot of distress. And we're going to look at this as a way that Jesus interacts with you and me, as a revelation of why we often experience inner distress. Why it's so hard to step out of that because of the way that it threatens the systems that produce that distress. So we're going to do this through a story. It's a pretty well-known story that um, you know, those of you familiar with it, with, you'll, you'll come to be aware of it. The longer story is prefaced by a shorter one. The Bible, the truthful literature, does this occasionally. You have a longer story, you preface it with a shorter one to provide a guide an indicator about what to pay attention to, what not to pay attention to, what surprising things might you encounter in the bigger story. So here's the shorter one. It's from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. On that day when evening had come, Jesus says to them, his friends, let us cross over to the far shore. And dismissing the crowd, they take him as he was in the boat, and other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves broke into the boat, so that now the boat was filling. And Jesus was sleeping on the pillow in the stern. Lovely. <laughs> and they rouse him and say to him, Teacher, does it not matter to you that we are perishing? And being woken, he rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Be silent, call yourself. Do not wake Jesus up from a good sleep. <laughs> and the wind fell in a great calm. And he said to them, why are you so afraid? How is it that you do not have faith? And they were afraid, enormously afraid. And said to one another, who then is this man that even the wind and the sea obey him? So what the story clues us into is that we are going to encounter another storm. The calming of which by Jesus surprisingly produces distress. Normally you think of peace as being a good thing. Right, sort of at first pass, superficially, oh, calming the storm, that would be wonderful. But you don't really have to think that far to come into examples where the imposition of peace is deeply distressing. Usually this is when a system imposes peace on somebody so that the system can keep functioning in its reprehensible way. So for example, one flew over the cuckoo's nest, right? The lobotomy at the end. 
the Borg in Star Trek lore assimilating those who resist. Soma in A Brave New World, a medication that just makes you feel good about everything. Or Cypher in The Matrix saying, yeah, I'm thumbs up with being plugged into this thing. Right? You and I watch that, and we inhabit the identity of the person upon whom peace is being imposed, and we feel horrified. It is a terrifying imposition of peacefulness. What Jesus is going to show, though, in this case, is kind of the opposite. Where a person emerges from an imposed identity, and it is the system that is terrifying. So we go on with the story. They came to the far shore of the sea, into the region of the Gerasenes. And as Jesus disembarked from the boat, there came out to meet him from the tombs a man with an impure spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one was able any longer to bind him with a chain, since he had often been bound with fetters and chains, and the chains had been torn asunder by him, and the fetters shattered, and no one had the strength to subdue him. And always, every night and day, he was among the tombs and in the mountains, crying out and gashing himself with stones. <laughs> so here's storm number two. Right? But this time, it's in a person. Now we have to do a couple of things with how we read these stories. Okay, so the first is what happens to us in these stories when we encounter something fantastical. We have a couple of things that cause us just to take it at face value. First of all, well, it's in the Bible, right? So it must have actually been the case that this man behaved in this way. And then truthfully too, we're kind of drawn to the fantastical. We become obsessed with it. The real word is fetish, fetishize. Now that word has a little bit of a problem because it's been completely associated with sexualization of things, but really it just means obsessed with some little thing that's off to the side of what's at the center. So it serves to distract us from the center, okay? <laughs> but if we allow ourselves to just face this story and what's going on, it can't actually be the case that this is what's going on with this man. There has never been a time in human history when if a group of people wanted to subdue one person, they couldn't do it. Chains, they had chains. Chains and fetters cannot be broken. It can't happen again and again that a group of people would be powerless to subdue somebody like this. It's a story. It's fantastical. Right? And if we start to think about what might be going on here, all the information that we have about this person, first of all, would have had to come from the townspeople, the folks around. Maybe the writer encounters the people when they spill out onto the shore and he hears the story and they say to him, Oh, there's this person who wanders the tombs, he breaks the chains. Maybe this person had enough renown in this region. It's not a big region of the country. It's around a large-ish lake. But if there was a person causing this kind of disturbance, there might become a kind of mythology about him. And if you map the telling of this story onto other kinds of stories, it becomes clear that he's just a pretty 
standard monster. He is a monstrous figure who is both dehumanized but also given superhuman abilities. Folks have compared him to the Cyclops in the Odyssey, in Homer's Odyssey, a characteristic kind of figure who is a fictionalization. He is a creation of the people around him. And if you can, in case you think I'm exaggerating or I'm just making this up as what's going on, here's a similar kind of occurrence from our own history. So this is a piece of thought from the writer, thinker, historian James Baldwin. African-American, writer, thinker, historian. White people will have to ask themselves, he writes, precisely why they found it necessary to invent the Negro. For the Negro is a white invention, and white people invented him out of terrible necessities of their own. And the history of this problem can be reduced to the means used by Americans, lynch law and law, segregation and legal acceptance, terrorization and concession. Either to come to terms with this necessity, or to find a way around it, or to find a way of doing both these things at once. The resulting spectacle led someone to make the quite accurate observation that the Negro in America is a form of insanity which overtakes white men. As part of this invention, Baldwin and others have described a similar process of dehumanization and monsterization that I would say has gone into the invention of the demoniac. And so what this figure does for the people on the ground who Jesus is encountering is he takes their own collective dissatisfaction with who they are, with how they have come to be who they are, and they can now deflect this and point it at this other being. They can fight with this being instead of with themselves. They can contend with what they have put into him instead of with what they have to, with what they would find if they were looking at themselves. So what does Jesus do when he encounters this monster? It says you can go to the next slide. And seeing Jesus from afar, he, the demoniac, ran and prostrated himself to him, to Jesus. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, What do I and you have to do with one another, Jesus, Son of the highest God? I adjure you by God not to torment me. For Jesus had been saying to the Spirit, Come out from the man, impure spirit. And Jesus asked him, What is your name? And the Spirit says to him, My name is because we are men. And the Spirit vehemently implored Jesus that he not send him out of the man. So we have a clue in this conversation that Jesus has with the demoniac about what might have been going on. If the way that I am telling the story is actually the case, what might have been going on with the Gerasenes, that they would do what they've done to this man for their own benefit. And it comes from the word legion. So legion from this verse has come since then to mean many, just a lot. But at this point in time, legion would have triggered awareness immediately for everybody 
of a Roman garrison of about three to 6,000 soldiers who represented the occupation, who represented the dominating presence of the Roman military. So here's a little description of this region. The central city to it would have been Gadara. The Greek historian Polybius describes Gadara as being in 218 BC, so about 250 years before what we're encountering. The strongest of all places in the region, a number of famous poets and writers emerged from Gadara. Nevertheless, it capitulated shortly afterwards when besieged by the Seleucid king Antiochus III of Syria, the region passed in and out of control of the Seleucid kings of Syria and the Ptolemies of Egypt. Gadara was captured and damaged by Alexander Janaeus. In 63 BC, the Roman general Pompey placed the region under Roman control, but in 30 BC, Augustus placed it under the control of the Jewish king Herod. After King Herod's death in 4 BC, so this is about 35 years before our story, Gadara was made part of the Roman province of Syria, and then in AD 66, so this is 30 years after our story, in AD 66, at the beginning of the Jewish revolt against the Romans, the country around Gadara was laid waste. Vespasian marched to the city of Gadara. He came into it and slew all the youth, the Romans having no mercy at any age whatsoever. He set fire to the city and all the villas around it. So what the history presents is a region of the country that once upon a time felt good about itself, was the strongest of all, produced art and literature, but then it endures two and a half centuries of just kind of cycling oppression. This ruler, that ruler, this power, that power, subjugating and oppressing it, dominating it. And even though the destruction that comes to this region doesn't happen for another 30 years, at the time of this story, they were under Roman oppression. And the threat would have been there. This is how the Romans behaved towards people who they subjugated. And so it's just not hard to imagine this people feeling their collective powerlessness, shame, humiliation, rage. And they identify one person from amongst probably a powerless person who can't resist their imposition, into whom they put all of their collective dissatisfaction with themselves. And so then you see what he does, right? He wanders amongst the tomb. He gashes himself with stones. He cries out in the mountains. <laughs> and then what does Jesus do when Jesus comes to interact with him? It's just remarkable. I have been in and out of streams of Christianity that have had theologies of demons and demonization. And that's, I think, too, where we can get sidetracked in this story. That can become, you know, what's the mechanism of demons? What are they actually? How did Jesus do what he did? But always the interaction for those who think about demonization is as a conflict, as a battle. You go to war with it. You try to conquer the demon presence. You even learning the name is a way of obtaining mastery. But then here comes Jesus. And again, the one noteworthy thing is, as we follow the story out, the only being amongst this region, amongst these people who Jesus interacts with, is the monster. It's the only person he, he doesn't go take interviews. He doesn't you know, gather data. He doesn't say, oh, you've been so afraid. Let me help you. 
let me relieve your distress. He just interacts with the created monster. And then my read of it is that Jesus is just kind. I think I shared a couple of weeks ago my own prayer practice, one of the pillars of which is inviting Jesus into my fraught inner world. Where Jesus comes into me and says, wow, you know, I, there's a lot of distress in here, isn't there? <laughs> and he's just kind. He's caring. And so as I look at this story, I think, oh my goodness, my guess is that this was the most kind, personable conversation about his inner world that this man has had since he became distressed. What is your name? What have we here? And it's clear, right, it's clear from the beginning that a part of what Jesus is going to do for this man, Jesus is interacting with this inner turmoil and saying, yeah, you can't stay here. You do have to leave. I do need to free this man from what you have brought inside him. But given that's a, that's a conversation, how would you like that to unfold? What would you like that to look like? is profoundly calm, profoundly interactive, profoundly knowing. What is your name? So, now we, we have the next fantastical occurrence. Okay? <clears throat> now they are near the mountain, a large herd of swine was feeding. And they entreated Jesus. This is the demons, not the swine. They entreated, <laughs> they entreated Jesus, saying, Send us into the swine so that we might enter into them. And Jesus gave them leave. And coming forth, the impure spirits entered into the swine. And the herd charged down the precipice of the sea about 2,000 and were suffocated in the sea. <laughs> Since forever, right, we've just wondered, that Jesus does not like animals, he's kosher, he doesn't care about pigs, you know. <clears throat> what does it mean? If we just pull back from that, what I see in being represented is the degree of torment that was in this man. Right, the instant what is in him goes into the pigs, the pigs say, oh my God, we have to kill ourselves. I cannot exist for one more second with this degree of inner distress. Right? And when the people come, which they'll come in a minute, they're going to be disturbed not by the loss of the pigs, but by the loss of their means of feeling okay about themselves and their system. This is what comes next. <clears throat> Those grazing them, the sheep, or I'm sorry, the pigs, fled and reported in the city and in the field. And they came to see what it is that has happened. And they come to Jesus and see the demoniac, the one who had, who had had legion in him, seated, clothed, and in his right mind. This one man. <clears throat> and they were afraid. And the eyewitness recounted to them how this had happened to the demoniac and all about the swine. And they began to implore Jesus to pass on beyond their borders. Please go away. Right? This is how it recounts this in Luke. It's a little more succinct. They went out to see what had happened and came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting clothed and in his right mind by the feet of Jesus, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it recounted how the demoniac had been healed, and the whole populace of the surrounding region of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them because they were gripped with a great fear. 
So here we have peace bringing fear. But this is not fear of being assimilated. This is the fear. These people, I think, what's happening is they are being forced to face themselves, both what they have done to him, but that their mechanism for feeling okay about themselves and about their system has been demolished. It's been exposed, been revealed for what it is, and they now have to face themselves. <coughs> it's terrifying to the institution. Here's Baldwin again. For Baldwin, the writer's task is to put aside America's myths and legends and force a kind of confrontation with the society as it is, becoming a disturber of the peace in doing so. In Baldwin's words, it means fighting an astute and agile guerrilla warfare that with, with that American complacency which so inadequately masks the American panic. The American white has got to accept the fact that what he or she thinks he or she is, he or she is not. He has to give up. He has to surrender his image of himself. And apparently this is the last thing white Americans are prepared to do. Baldwin says, I am not what you said I was. And if my place, as it turns out, is not my place, then you are not what you said you were. And where is your place? Peace of this kind is thus an act of defiance. It is a provocation to the system. And this kind of thing goes on all the time. <laughs> Every time you or I as parents say to our children, shame on you, right? We are trying to put something into them to deflect attention away from ourselves. From something about ourselves that we don't like. We are embarrassed. We are exposed. And so we are trying to put into them a form of distress that will relieve us from needing to see ourselves. <laughs> the problem with my wife and I is that we have the crazy notion to try to produce a shame-free house. So that when we would then subsequently try to do this to our kids, they would say, don't do that. That's not allowed here. And we would have to face what it was in ourselves that wanted to produce this in our children. In the 1970s, people studying family systems came to perceive something called the identified patient that in a dysfunctional family system, it is often the one person who detects and who rejects the dysfunction who becomes monsterized, who becomes pathologized. Right? So the family says, you are the problem. This is what's the matter with you. And the person internalizes that. The trouble with this mechanism of producing distress, of disturbing the peace in an individual, is that that person is usually powerless to resist. A child has to be in the family. A slave is a slave. We do this in religion. I think about the degree to which Christianity, because of our own discomfort with our founding, with our violence, with the harm we have caused, the things that we tell people they have to believe about themselves. You are evil through and through. Because of your badness, God had to kill his most beloved one. Your queerness is an abomination. Right? These are the things we have put into people. 
for the sake of the equanimity of our system. Jesus struggled with this all the time. Yeah, the only reason you can cast out demons is that you are the father of demons. Give glory to God, we know this man is a sinner. Again and again, putting onto and into him vile truths, untruths for the sake of the system. I try to imagine what it would be like if if Jesus came to you and me and did an exorcism of the sort that this man experienced, you know. Jesus comes to you into your inner world. <laughs> oh, I see that you believe you're an abomination. Oh, I see you believe because of your badness that that's why I was killed. Oh, I see you believe you are evil through and through. Let's remove those. Let's send them flee. Pick some organism that you really don't like. <laughs> How about mosquitoes? <laughs> We're just going to send all those vile thoughts into the mosquitoes, and they're going to drop down. You know, thumbs up. Right? But just what a remarkable thing that Jesus would do for you that he would do for me. I had this moment. This would be my closing I was walking away from work, and my day was done, heading towards the car, I ran into a colleague, a fellow worker, a peer of mine. And we got chatting, we didn't have a system, and systems are horrible, you know, oh, they're oppressive and corrupt. And so this friend said to me, yeah, we're just cogs in the machine, we're just rats running the wheels. And I felt it, right, like I, my impulse was to agree. I would agree with my friend, I wouldn't challenge his notion. It is kind of a possibly true narrative for all of us who have the system. But what I was aware of was I was talking with him. So I didn't, I didn't agree. Because oh, I didn't even know what to do. Walk away. And I said to myself, that's not true of me. Partly because I was actually feeling pretty good about myself in my workplace. Sure, it's a system. But I liked what I was doing, I liked who I am, felt like I was interacting well with people, contributing some goodness, some betterness, and just... So I, in myself I said, no. I am not going to believe that about myself. I am not going to believe that I am a cog in the machine or a rat running a wheel. And I had this whole thing in mind. And I said, oh. <laughs> I said, no. I said no to what the system wanted me to believe. I immediately had the thought, but why didn't I say that to him? And I knew, like it wasn't hard. If I say that to him, I put myself at odds with him. Right? I challenge him. I challenge his notion of who he is. I challenge this whole notion of the system. Like I reveal it to itself. And so the ability, the challenge to actually do that act of defiance, there's a lot that stands against that. There are a lot of reasons why you and I would not do that, why it is easier to internalize the lie that produces unrest in you. So here's the invitation to you for this morning. Okay? A moment of reflection. We inhabit both sides of this. You and I produce this in others. We inhabit systems that we like. 
that we don't want to disturb, and we ask other people to experience inner unrest for the sake of our systems. We also, my guess is, are almost all the recipients of this kind of thing. You have internalized what the system wants you to believe about yourself so that it can be at peace, but you experience trouble. Jesus is here to show that to you, to enter into that, to say, yeah, that's not true. Why don't we send it back? So I'm going to pray. Just give us a moment, and then we'll move on. So Jesus, you want to bring us into peace and peacefulness. But it's oftentimes at the expense of the systems that have caused us to see ourselves in a certain way, to believe untruths, to cause us to become villains and monsters, just things that we are not. We invite you into our inner space right now to help us see what's actually the case about us, to be strengthened by you to embrace peacefulness that comes from freedom. 